illuminate your word tonight and, and teach us. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. You know, if we look around, just kind of take a cursory view of society, of American culture today, I think it's undeniable, especially in this crowd here tonight, that we are living in a day in America where churches that are there, there are churches that are busy, there are churches that are growing, but when you look at the fruit of the churches, you look at the fruit of these ministries, there's something missing. There's something missing. The buildings are huge. There's, there are plenty of programs. The music is professional. The community programs are absolutely endless. You ever see uh, James River has this 4th of July thing they put on? I mean, this thing is professional. Yeah, it is. And thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people come there. Now, I don't know what they do with that with the gospel. I have no idea. I know whatever gospel to get them, it's going to be lead right to unbiblical doctrine eventually. So, that's not the topic tonight. Let's move on. So when you look at the product of these churches, people are not acting more Christ-like. Okay, I'm I'm thinking about the fruit of some of these ministries. Do we see people more Christ-like in our society? Do you see them more Christian-like? Are people becoming less worldly? based on the ministries that are out there. Now, I know they have their own definition of worldliness, and sometimes it's, it's amazing to me, but are they becoming less worldly? Are these community programs ever getting down to the gospel? I'm all for community programs, if they, if they lead to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because I, I've said it before, I'll say it over and over and over again, if you just have programs and build houses and dig wells and never give them the gospel, you just give them somewhere more comfortable to go to hell from. And that's all it is. And so we look at these churches, quote, that are growing, that are expanding. And you look at the fruit of them and you wonder sometimes. Most of the times they're shallow churches with shallow doctrine that, that evidences itself in the, life of, in the life of shallow individuals, shallow members producing just shallow lifestyles. A lot of shallowness. You like that? Yeah. You ever, have you ever seen so many professors of Christ go to church on Sunday? Maybe. Maybe. And then the rock concert or the country concert some other day of the week? You ever seen? And, and this is the thing. It's always happened. We've always had this, okay? We've, we've had all the analogies of, you know, the, the bar on Saturday and, and the church on Sunday, and we know this. And it's always been there. It's always been wrong. But... We look around today and it's not only is it more pervasive, but it's now it's accepted. Now it's okay. Now it's, oh, don't be so judgmental. It's just, it's just music. That's all it is. It's just this or it's just that. But it's, but it's acceptable now. It's acceptable now. Yeah. I marvel at people I've talked to, family members I've talked to. And they don't read their Bible. I, I remember one young man I was talking to, a family a relative, and uh, they had, uh, you know, in a family church type of thing they have going, their own little thing, and some just uh, wrong doctrine, uh, the, the denial of the deity of Jesus Christ. I don't know how you go past that, but they try to. And, uh, and I asked him, I said, do, do you read your Bible? And he says, no. I said, well, then how do you know what you're saying is right? Well, it is. Well, how do you know? (laughs) 
No, I mean, just think that through logically. I had, no, he had opinions on the Bible. He had a belief system that he said, when I said, no, Jesus is very God. He's the Son of God. He is God. He's the second person to the Trinity. I could go through all of the scriptures to show and prove to you that he is deity. He is God himself. And you will argue, this guy will argue and say, no, he's not. And then yet say, I don't read my Bible. Well, how could you even argue with me on it? I said, I told him, I said, I don't mean to be prideful. I'm just giving you a fact. You know, I, I've not always done this. I've not always done this in the past. But since 2008, I've tried to read my Bible through at least once a year. And you're telling me you've never read it through or don't even read it at all, but you're going to correct me on doctrine. Now, I can be anybody. Listen, folks, we can all be corrected on doctrine. Don't get me wrong. But I'm just saying from where he was coming from, it's a ridiculous argument. And you know what you find with people like this? They don't read the Bible, but they'll go get a Bible verse tattooed on their body that supposedly is owned by God. It's like, I don't get this. You know, they don't even know the Bible enough to know that they probably shouldn't be getting tattoos because it's not even their body that they owe. It's got, it belongs to him. And I don't have time to get into tattoos tonight and things like that and all the other things that they're doing to their bodies. But that, yeah, I don't read the Bible. I don't know. I don't read the Bible, but I want a Bible verse on my arm, which proves I don't even know that. I, it really proves that I don't read my Bible, you know, so. No, this is, this is American culture we're living in today. This is, this is Christianity in America today and what we're looking at. And there was a day when most, and I'll, I'll say Protestant, because we're not Protestants, we're Baptists. We never protested. We existed before the Protestant Reformation. We're being butchered before the Reformation, during the Reformation, after the Reformation. We have always been. So I'm going to say even Protestant churches at one time in America, taught some form of holiness and personal separation. They did. They did. So we're living in a strange time, aren't we, in the United States of America. Churches across the country are occupied. They are occupied and run by the world, the flesh, and the devil. That's exactly what runs them. Now, I can actually accept this of these churches because I contend biblically they're not a church. Okay? They have the gospel, yes. Can people get saved? Okay, yes, fine. But it, wasn't, it is not the church that Jesus started. Okay, Listen, when you're baptizing babies, it wasn't Jesus' church. All right? It's just not. Yeah. But what about independent, fundamental Baptist churches? <laughs> what about them? It's not just happening in mainstream ecumenical churches. It's just not happening out there. That would be really easy to contend with. And we get up and scream and foam at the mouth and tell them they're wrong and show them from the Bible they're wrong. But it's happening in self-proclaimed, and I said that word purposely, self-proclaimed, independent, fundamental, Baptist churches as well. I was just talking to Pastor Rick Tony yesterday. We were chatting about things and like pastors usually do. And, and, uh, and he told me that he was doing a survey. I, I, I texted him today. I said, hey, can I uh, use what you told me yesterday? He said, yeah, that'd be fine. So here it is. He told me yesterday he did a survey of 26 independent fundamental, so proclaimed IFB, Independent Fundamental Baptist Churches in Missouri from here to Kansas City. He just called random independent Baptist churches. And he asked them if they were King James only. Are you ready for this? Oh, no, no, there's more. There's more. Out of 26 of them, 14 were not KJV. 
Well, he said one lady answered the phone. He asked him, asked her, he said what he was doing. He asked, are you King James only? And she goes, I don't even know if I know what that, I don't know if I, I even know what that means. No, the, the old standard bearer, the IFB. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, there's problems there too. Yeah. They might be independent, but they're not Baptist. <laughs> yeah. They can call themselves whatever they want to. I, I, I'm going to be honest with you. I, I shouldn't say that. That's not right to say. I'm going to, I'm going to be uh, very frank with you. That's the word. That's the right word. I love it when they take Baptist off their church because they're not a Baptist church. And the only wackos who don't is, are people like uh, like uh, uh, Westboro Baptists. You know, they can tend to they leave, they leave theirs on there. I wish they would take it off, but uh, you know those guys who protest funerals and stuff out in Kansas. Yeah, military funeral. They're they're nuts. <laughs> but independent Baptist churches, independent Baptist churches, they're not Baptist. They're just independent. They call themselves Baptists, by and large, only because they've had it on their church for 30 or 40 years. And half of them don't even know why they would be a Baptist in the first place and what it means. So it really shouldn't be a surprise, but it is sad. It is sad. Well, I said all this to bring bring us into Revelation chapter 3. And here we are at the church in Sardis. And really, if you want to look at this, I believe, it's my opinion looking at this, and I know there's application all over the place here, but I want to hone in on this tonight, that there's application here that Sardis was in the same condition as Baptist churches in America are today. Now, and we're going to look at this. No, independent fundamental Baptist churches everywhere and all over the United States, uh, many of them are struggling. They're struggling with their identity. Charles, Charles, Brother Charles Elliott said it well. He said, as, as Christians, we've lost our identity. We don't even know what we identify with and who we identify with anymore. And it's so true. But let me give you a little background of, of Sardis here, of the actual city of Sardis. Like all of these churches we've looked at, Western Turkey, it was the capital city of the of ancient Lydia. It was about 30 miles south. Remember last week we looked at Thyatira. It's about 30 miles south of Thyatira. So if you had a church in Springfield, you might, 30 miles south might be, uh, if you went down 160, is that... Is, are you past Spokane maybe? Is that about 30 miles south or more? Yep, somewhere around there. So if, if you had, uh, say, uh, uh, you know, I was, I was from Berean Baptist. You had Berean, you drive down to Faith Baptist at Spokane. There you go, about 30 miles or so that way. It's about 60 miles inland from the, from the western coast of Turkey, about 60 miles inland of Ephesus and Smyrna. And it was, it was known for the typical cultural idolatry of its day. Okay. Artemis was the main goddess, which was all through this area. I've never uh, really picked, spent much time on this uh, specifically, but but Artemis was the main goddess of the city and of that whole area. And the, the, the temple there in Sardis was dedicated to her. And it was one of the seven largest Greek temples, which was right there in Sardis. It was more than double the size of the Parthenon. So Artemis, who is also known as Diana, does that sound familiar? The goddess Diana, that's she was she was known as Diana to the Romans, and it was said to be Artemis was said to be the daughter of Zeus, I believe it was, and the twin of Apollo. We're getting into all Greek mythology here, and she was the goddess of the hunt. So if you want to go out deer hunting, you start praying to Artemis. She's supposed to get you deer, and she was the goddess of the moon, 
I kind of like that. Do you know the moon is just a reflection of the sun? Doesn't produce light. <laughs> yeah. And she was, of course, like all of these, she's the goddess of fertility. And you can just imagine, as we have already looked, where that led to. So just like all of the other cities in western Turkey, Sardis is also had also accepted Roman rule over them and brought about the same gods as the other cities where we just looked at of all of the other seven churches. Now, it was known for being the first... Now, get this. This is fast. My geeky mind likes stuff like this. And if you like useless information, this is fun. Sardis was known for being the first to mint coins of silver and gold. They had an actual mint there and they made coins. They were famous for their carpet. They were famous for wool and dyes. And they were obviously, because of this, a very wealthy, wealthy city. It was a thriving city. It was a prosperous city. You can even get on Google now and look. It was, it was a beautiful city geographically. The big mountains and things. Oh, it's just beautiful, beautiful setting. So that's the background of the city of Sardis. But in Revelation 3, I want to look at here the background of the church. And here in verse 1, I read this already to you. We have the introduction of Jesus. As we have had in all the churches already, Jesus introduces himself here. And we, we saw this, and he introduces himself, really we'll notice, as, as the answer to the problem. Each church has a, Jesus presents himself as the, as the answer to each church and the problem that they face. So here in, in, in Revelation, Jesus is presented this way. These things saith he that hath the seven spirits of God and the seven Stars. Well, we know that the seven stars, the stars are referencing the pastors. You can see that back in Revelation chapter 2 in verse 20. The mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest on my right hand and the seven golden candlesticks. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. The, each church did not have its own guardian angel. Some people teach that. The word angel just means messenger. And of course, within the structure of the church of Jesus, uh, the pastor is the head of the church. The buck stops with him. He's responsible, and he is the messenger of the church. And here he is. He, Jesus is writing to the angels of the church. Each church, it begins out this way. So you could say this way, and to the pastor at the church at Sardis. That's where it starts. And he says, these things saith he of the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. So if we know that the stars are the pastors, he says he has these things. What are the seven spirits? Now you can just raise your hand. You don't have to. You don't have to say. Has anybody actually ever? And this is not an indictment, okay? Because I mean, this is this is tricky stuff. Anybody ever studied out what the seven spirits are? What that term even means? Okay. Oh, all right. We'll have to compare notes. I like that. I like that. No, that's a good guess. I find it, I think it, it's kind of interesting you said that, but there are seven, you know the Bible lists seven works of the Spirit of God in the life of the believer. I mean, we're not going to spend a lot of time with these. I'm just going to list them for you and list a verse, okay? But it's, watch it, it's Jesus who promised to send the Holy Spirit. It's Jesus also who had the authority to send the Spirit of God. And so Jesus, let me say it this way, Jesus holds that authority. Jesus has that authority now listen to these seven verses on the works of the Spirit of God. Number one, the Spirit is involved in justification. 1 Corinthians 6.11, And such were some of you, but ye are washed, but ye are sanctified, but ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Justification. 
Here's another work of the Spirit, sanctification. 2 Thessalonians 2 and verse 13, But we are bound to give thanks always for you, uh, to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning beginning chosen you unto salvation chosen you to salvation i love this one this is great for the for the calvinist god has chosen you to salvation how has he chosen you through sanctification of the spirit and the belief of the truth what does sanctification means to set apart you know how god chooses you to salvation the holy spirit of god sets you aside he convicts you and you believe the truth or you don't believe the truth it's so complicated isn't it Sanctification is a work of the Spirit. The life, life is a, Romans 8, 1 and 2. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus, Paul said, hath made me free from the law of sin and death. Here's a work of the Holy Spirit, life. Here's another work of the Spirit of God, truth. John four seventeen. even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him. But ye know him, for he dwelleth with you, and shall be in you. Then we see wisdom in Ephesians 1 and verse 17. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. We know that God is wisdom. We know that James 1, 5 says, If any man lack wisdom, let him ask of God, which giveth all men liberally, and upbraideth not, right? So, you know, in John 16, 13, the Bible talks about the spirit of truth that will guide you into all truth. All right. So we see here one of the work of the spirit of God, I believe, is wisdom. God is the giver of wisdom. Number six, we see deliverance. You need deliverance from something? My brother's pastor one time said, uh, he said, you know, some of you need to quit praying for forgiveness and start praying for for deliverance. (laughs) Let you think about that. Matthew 12, 26 and 28. And if Satan cast out Satan, he's divided against himself. How, how shall then his kingdom stand? And if I by Beelzebub cast out devils, by whom do your children cast them out? Therefore they shall be your judges. But if I cast out devils by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God is come unto you. Jesus said, you want to know if the kingdom of God is here? What is the kingdom of God? Here's a little re- rehash. The kingdom of God is what? I, I, I'm trying to remember how I, uh, the, the, the wording, how this goes. It is the, the rule of God. The kingdom of God is the rule of God in the hearts of willing subjects. It's the rule of God in the hearts of willing subjects. Over in John, the Bible says that the kingdom is within you. It's within you. And here's what Jesus says here. But if I cast out devils by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come unto you. You're gonna, you know how you know the kingdom of God is, is here? It's, is the, the deliverance, the work of deliverance in the Spirit of God. And finally, number seven, prayer. Romans 8, 26. And we know likewise the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities. For we know not what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit itself, the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. So I think this is kind of fascinating here. You see seven aspects of the work of the Spirit of God in the life of the believers. And here it is to the church at Sardis that Jesus is presented as having the seven spirits as well as the seven stars. So what do you think it means? I think really, I think one thing it means is that Jesus knows. We're talking a spirit realm here. Jesus knows, and not only that, Jesus is in absolute, complete control. He's in complete control. 
Regardless of where you go with your life, church, listen, regardless of where you go with your life, regardless of where Calvary Baptist Church ends up someday, it will do nothing to the power and the sovereignty of the Lord Jesus Christ. It cannot touch it. It can't touch it. And no matter what, Jesus knows everything. He knows everything. So notice this next. We have the introduction of Jesus, and look at the introduction of the church of Sardis. I know thy works that thou hast a name, that thou livest, and art dead. So they have works, and this is, this should be typical of every church. It was listed so far in every church here in Revelation, the first five churches. It's going to be listed in the next two churches. But uh, churches have works. Why? Because Jesus had works. He said, I come to do the work of Him that sent me. I came to do the, the, the works that I was told to do. Jesus worked, and if Jesus works, and the church is a... is is simply the body of Christ continuing on with the work of Jesus Christ. Churches have works. We do things. And here Jesus says, I know to Sardis, I know your works. Now, not every church has the same works. We'll see this here at Sardis. But Jesus says, I know them. He's the all-knowing God. He sees and He knows their works. Know what else they have? They have works, but also they have a name. Jesus says, I know your name. I know the name that you have. I know the name that you have among the community. I know the name that you have among Asia Minor. Maybe, obviously, uh, this, this name went out beyond this. He, he says, I know your name. It's a name that says I'm alive. And he says, you're dead. Wow. Not you're dying. Not, oh no. Uh, you, you know, if you don't do this, 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 or that, this is going to happen. Look what, look what he says here. I know thy works and that thou hast a name that thou livest and art dead. Can I tell you something? The all-knowing God, when He says you're dead, you can convince anybody however you want to. But you're dead. <laughs> all right? You're not going to... You can say all you want, but you're dead. And notice their condition. They have a works, they have a name, and they had a condition that I just said, which is they are dead. So the long history of this church was that it had a great name among Christians. It had a great name maybe among the community. But the only thing left of the work here is its name. Yeah. If you notice, there's no commendation here whatsoever. There's no, well, I'm glad you did this. Well, I'm glad you didn't like the work of the Nicolaitans. I'm glad you didn't like this. I'm glad you did this. But now let's work on this. Nothing. You're dead. And all you have left is a name. Yeah. Sound familiar? Could I name them in, just in Springfield alone? I don't know. I think High Street still has a name. It's dead. Yeah. Seminole? Yeah. What do you think Brother Tracy would think? Yeah. Yeah. We can go down the list. No, they still have a name. There's still works going on. There's still buildings being built. I mean, kind of struggling some of them are. But I'm telling you, there's still activity. There's still things. It still looks like there's a name going on there. They, you know, but they're dead. Dead. They've walked away from biblical purity and truth. Can I tell you, it doesn't matter how great you were. It matters how great you are now. It matters what you're doing now in obedience. So this was the problem here with the church at Sardis. They were just dead. A dead church. 
Notice Jesus gives a remedy for its ruin here in verses 2 and 3. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die, for I have not found thy work perfect before God. Remember therefore how thou hast received and heard and hold fast and repent. If therefore thou shalt not watch, I will come on thee as a thief, and thou shalt not know what hour I will come upon thee. So the first thing, the first remedy that that Jesus gives, and I love this. You, you notice this? God can bring life, breathe life into what's dead. He still has a remedy for them. He still has something for them to do. Every church that has gone out here, even in our own community, that that has, and don't get too excited about Calvary Baptist because we could be there too. Don't get don't, don't get too worked up about if if you think everything's right here. It's not okay. But 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 the the wonderful thing is when you look out of these things, they can turn around. Is it hard? Oh, man, it's hard. It's hard. There's only God knows. Only God knows when Ichabod goes over the door sometimes. Okay? And sometimes when it's time to carry on and let it die and go along somewhere else, God knows that. But here, here, here uh, I, I love this, that they still, he still gives them a remedy. And the first thing is to watch. Look what he says, be watchful. That word watch there means to give strict attention to. To be in a state of giving attention to. It's like, you know what? If I knew uh, that Jack Leg was going to come take the van at Wednesday, Sunday morning or Monday morning, we would have been out here watching. What we'd, been, we'd been in expectation looking for what was going to be coming. Jesus says, be watchful. Stand there in expectation. In expectation of what? Of the things that are dying and are ready to die. Watch out for these things. You know, take heed unless destruction comes about because you've had this lackadaisical attitude about things. So he tells them to be watchful. I was thinking about this and how we get to conditions like this here at Sardis. You know, I think one of the biggest problems that we can have and I think this is what happens, what you see here in Sardis is what happens when we rely, listen closely, when we rely upon yesterday's victories to get us through tomorrow. I don't have time to go back to the, to the priests, how they were supposed to clean out the ashes every day and burn new wood. They weren't supposed to burn yesterday's wood. There's nothing to burn. When there's ashes, there's nothing left to burn. And listen, they were not operating on yesterday's sacrifices and yesterday's offerings. They were, they were operated on today's. Today's. And so, you know, it's, it's, it's so, it happens many times, I think, that one of the greatest downfalls to a church can be when it looks back at the, at the great accomplishments of the past and think they're enough for today. You know, well, we can't be wrong. Look, look, look where we are. We can't be wrong. Look at this. Uh, this. This can't be a bad decision we're making because look how great the church is and look what God's done with this place. Well, that was yesterday. How many of you are still operating off last week's meals? <laughs> Not Martin. <laughs> yep. Not me. Not anybody. Else. No, we don't do that. So watch now, look what he says here. Not only to watch, but now he says to strengthen. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain. There are some things that 
or possibly could be have life brought back to them. And he, we're told to strengthen them. Why? Because you're about to die. Why? Because your works aren't perfect. The word perfect means mature. They're not biblical. They're not Bible works. And so it's time to rebuild. It's time to strengthen the things that have been allowed to die. What has allowed things? What do you, what would you surmise would be things that would, would have allowed stuff to die here at Sardis? I really think it all begins, rises and falls on doctrine. Just once, and it's small, it's, you know, oh, this will be okay, this will be all right. And then people come in with different ideas. Colleges start putting out graduates that believe different things, and you don't know it. You allow them to stay. They start teaching, they start taking over. You know, doctrine starts changing. Listen, there's been plenty of independent Baptist churches out here that are a shell of what they once were because somebody came in with Calvinism and destroyed them and split them. Instead of getting the guts to go out and build their own church, they come and take another one. Yeah. Ooh, that sounded hard, didn't it? It's just true. It's true. Where do you think most of their members come from? They get saved as a Baptist, and then they become Calvinist. <laughs> it happens. It's weird. It happens all the time. So he tells them to watch. He tells them to strengthen that which remains. And then he tells them, letter C, uh, to remember. To remember, to look back where you used to be, to call to mind the former years, and look back where you once were and ask, how did I get here? How did I get here? Remember when Saul, Saul with the Amalekites over, I think, in 1 Samuel 15, Saul was, uh, was told to go out and utterly destroy the Amalekites, and he went out and he utterly-ish destroyed the Malachites, right? And Samuel comes along and he said, you get them all? Got them all. <laughs> What's the meaning of the bleeding of the sheep I hear? Oh, the people. <laughs> they just wanted to keep a few to bring back to sacrifice to the Lord. You know, bless their heart. They meant well. Yeah. Well, you know, it's, well, you know what Samuel told them? When thou wast little in thine own sight, ooh, that's when you were great with God. You know what he's telling me? Look back, Samuel. Look back, Saul. I mean, look back, Saul. When you came to this position like you're just a child, like, like David did, like Solomon did, and you relied upon God, oh, God did great things for you, but now you're, somebody, you're a big shot now, and now you can disobey God. Here's what he's saying in Sardis. Remember, look back. Look back where you started from. Not only just to look back, but hold fast. So it means to observe. To, it's like taking a step backward from a situation and from a scene and getting an overall view of the whole, uh, of, of the whole, uh, of the whole situation and, and see what's going on. You know, you've heard the saying, you, you can't see the forest for the trees. Sometimes you need to step back far enough and observe, which means that's what this word hold fast means, to observe how you got here. And take some time to look things over. And then he says to repent. You can see it there in our verse, repent. Change your mind. Change your mind of your current program. I like to drop your pride and admit your worldly philosophy isn't working. Just admit it. 
No, drop the praise band. Let's get, I'm going to get specific. I'll get specific. Drop the praise band. Drop the worship team. Uh, bring back the pews. Turn on the lights. Return the smoke machine back to the rental place. Pull out the hymnals again. Dust off the King James Bible and preach the word of God. That's what you do. Yeah. Repent. <laughs> Just repent. Because the other stuff doesn't work. Oh, we have a full building, but you're dead. You have a full building of worldlings. Carnal, carnal, fleshly people that know nothing about the Word of God. Just return to the Bible way of doing church. I was trying to make up an acronym here. Return to, what, return to what made the church great in the first place. You know, so how did they get here? How did the church at Sardis get here? I think this is more kind of like the point of application maybe even here tonight. But... Uh, you know, if, if somebody's going to stop and they're going to observe the, the current condition of their church, you eventually have to ask that question. How did we get here? How did we get where we're at? You know, here in the church of Sardis, I don't know if, if you, if you uh, maybe go home tonight and take a little closer look at this, these uh, six verses here, you'll notice it wasn't from outside persecution. It's not mentioned. It's not mentioned. There was none. It wasn't from really wrong doctrine that, that, that just comes out like Jesus might have said, that you have the doctrine of Balaam, or you have the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, or you have the, he didn't say any of that at all. It may not have been that at all. It wasn't from self-appointed women preachers that we saw last week. That Jezebel, Jesus called her. Yeah, it wasn't from that. Actually, if you look closely at this, there's really not much external mentioned as being the culprit for the church in Sardis becoming dead. So what is it? I think you're, the answer is going to be found in the revelation of Jesus himself to the church. Remember he had the seven spirits, he had the seven stars. We came to the conclusion, uh, you might come to, there might be a few other things here that we could draw out of this, but the main things I want to draw out of the person of Jesus Christ here is that he knows. He knows. He knows there are things that only Jesus can see. He knows all things. And what is one thing difficult for us to see? Uh, yes, we can see the outworkings of it on the outside, but what is really, it's what's hard to see sometimes. The heart. The heart. Would you turn to Jeremiah chapter 3 real quickly? And we'll kind of bring this together and finish up. I was in my Bible reading this morning and it came through this passage. As you know, Israel is away from God. God is sending prophet after prophet to get them to return, to repent, to turn from their idolatry, to turn back to God. And if you notice here, in verse 6, the Bible says, Jeremiah 3 and verse 6, the Bible says, The Lord said also unto me in the days of Josiah the king, Hast thou seen that which backsliding Israel hath done? She has gone up on every high mountain and under every green tree, and there hath played the harlot. And I said, after she had done all these things, Turn thou unto me. But she returned not. And her treacherous sister Judah saw it. And I saw 
when for all the causes whereby backsliding Israel committed adultery, I had put her away and given her a bill of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah feared not, but went and played the harlot also. And it came to pass through the lightness of her whoredom that she defiled the land and committed adultery with stones and with rocks. This is just pure idolatry. Spiritual adultery and idolatry. Stones and stocks. And yet for this, I'm sorry, and yet for all this, her treacherous sister Judah hath not turned unto me with her whole heart, but feignly, saith the Lord. And the Lord said unto me, The backslide in Israel hath justified herself more than the treacherous Judah. And I notice this term here, the two different terms, backsliding Israel, treacherous Judah. Do you know what the difference of those are? Backsliding is a visible thing. You know when somebody's backslidden. It was so evident that Israel was backslidden in their idolatry. It was on every high hill, it was under every green tree, it was under every grove. It was all over the place and it was visible. But notice treacherous Judah. It was hidden. Treacherous. It was on the inside, not the outside. Do you see what God says here? And yet for all this her treacherous sister Judah hath not turned unto me with her whole heart, but feignedly saith the Lord. This was an aspect of Judah, actually. They looked good on the outside, but the inside, their heart was still just as far from God as Judah was. Sounds like Sardis. They still had a name. They still had a name, but inside they were dead. They were dead. And though the world may have looked on the church at Sardis as though everything looked great, those close to God knew there was a problem. In verse three of chapter, or verse four of chapter three, there in Revelation, it talks about there. There's still a few names. There is a few in Sardis that still had a heart right with God. And God said, "You're going to overcome, and you're going to be in white. You're going to be with me." <laughs> no, th- there were some that had a name and a heart. Still, they wanted God. And ultimately, the one who gives the Holy Spirit and the one who knows all things knows where every failing and every falling begins. And it all begins in the heart, folks. And this is the point. This is what I'm going to, this is what I'm going to talk to you about tonight. You say talk, you've been yelling at me. This hit me this morning as well. It's a heart problem. It's a heart problem. Yeah. Do you know the heart, your heart problem doesn't have to be the world's fault? It doesn't have to be persecution. It almost is almost never persecution that drives somebody's heart from God. It doesn't have to be persecution. Many times, you know what? Our heart just wanders away from God and looks to be filled with something else. It does. Many times... And and listen, folks, you know when your heart's right with God and you know when your heart isn't. You know when the outside looks good and the inside's rotten. And you know when, when everything is in sync and everything's clicking along like it ought to. But I've noticed that many times 
the heart goes away from God because of disillusionment. Many times in life we expected God to be one thing and He turned out not to be. And we go, oh. Well, that didn't work. That wasn't what I thought it was going to be. That didn't turn out like I thought. Well, I'll still go to church. I, I, I want church. I want God. I want to sing songs. I want to... But something begins to die inside. And you begin to go back to the world. And you begin to go back to those other things that you thought satisfied. And you begin to walk away from God. It's a heart issue. It's a heart issue. And it's what got Sardis, I believe. It's just a, a heart that walked away from God. And Jesus could see it a mile away. Where's the heart? It's hidden inside of you, right? You see the, you see the imagery here? The heart's at you. I mean, of course, the physical heart is in it. I mean, no, you don't, nobody, thankfully, God didn't create us with a heart flopping around on the outside. We want to live very long, right? It's hidden. This was Sardis', Sardis problem, a hidden problem, a hidden problem. And it was a heart problem. So let me ask you tonight, we'll finish up. Where's your, where's your heart? Where's your heart tonight? Listen, Calvary Baptist Church, we're not facing persecution. A van stolen, big deal. <laughs> you know? No, nobody's being quartered. Nobody's being, you know, having, you know, their, their limbs torn from them, literally. It's not happening. We don't face persecution. I do my best not to allow weird doctrines in here. <laughs> yeah. We are interviewing a couple women preachers, though. I'll let you know that. We are. No, I'm joking. We're not. We're not. But the one thing that will bring death to Calvary Baptist Church is if when in our heart we walk away from God. It'll kill us. It'll kill us. We might look good on the outside. Services may be going along. You know, outreach might still be going on. Things might look good. We might be a treacherous Judah with everything looking well, but only Jesus knows our heart. Jesus knows it, and He sees it, and Sardis is a great warning to us. Right now, it it might not be a condemnation to anybody here tonight. It might be. But if if the Holy Spirit of God isn't isn't pointing something out in your heart, take it as a great warning that that you make sure that you don't get there ever and keep your heart close to God. You know, I find it absolutely fascinating and appropriate that it was that it that it was Solomon who wrote the uh, in, in Proverbs chapter four, where he said, "Keep thy heart with all diligence." That word "keep" means to protect and to guard. For out of it come the issues of life. Are you guarding your heart tonight? Are you guarding your heart? It'll kill you if you don't. And it'll ruin you. It'll ruin a church. Although it may look good on the outside. Let's not be a Sardis. Let's not be a Sardis. Let's just uh, keep moving along and doing what God wants us to. Listen, if you've been disillusioned in life and your heart's been kind of hardened, how do I say this? It's a trust issue. A relationship can only go as deep as the trust is. 
And, and you know, when, when our, I'll say our, when our heart walks away from God is when disillusionment comes and we cease to trust Him. And if you want your heart back with God again, you're just going to have to, by faith, trust Him. And you know what you'll watch? You'll watch the callousness of your heart fall away. And He'll get sweet again. And life will change for you again. It will. I'm telling you, it will. He can do that. Let's guard our hearts.